With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The nerds is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Forever, and alongside me is Logan Camden. And the Denver Nuggets just stormed their way to a huge Game 3 win in Miami, retaking control of this final series. Another incredible game from Nikola Jokic, and Jamal Murray was also excellent. So, Logan, what stands out to you from this game? Well, first... Uh, like you mentioned, I think we have to give Nikola Jokic his flowers after this performance. I mean, I know that people are tired of it, dude, that uh, I think one of the commentators said it on the broadcast. It seems like every game that Nikola Jokic plays uh, right afterwards, we're talking about how he joined some historic company. And in this one, he's got the first 30-20-10 game in NBA Finals history. He's the first player with 10 or more triple doubles in a single playoff run. Only two other players have 30-20-10 games. Uh, and I believe playoff history, that's Wilt and Kareem. I mean, just rarefied air, dude. And it, it just it puts another cap on why this is such a historically great playoff run from Nikola Jokic. But for this game, I want to start out with Jamal Murray and how important he is to the whole conglomerate and collective that is the Nuggets offense. I mean, he's when Jamal Murray is being aggressive, it really unlocks the Nuggets offense to a complete other level. Uh, and you saw it in the first half. I mean, he has 20 points. He has more field goal attempts and more points than all of Game 2 combined. And that was my big critique after Game 2 is that, you know, Jamal showed up in the fourth quarter, and big credit for hitting some big shots late to keep them in that game and to keep that thing close to get down to a shot at the final buzzer where they could have won it. But in this one, you don't have to wait for three quarters for him to show up. He is consistently dominant throughout this game from every level, every shot type. I mean, getting to the rack, pull-up jumpers, all the nasty in-between stuff from behind the arc with the two-man game with Jokic. Um, in this playoff run, I mean, I, I don't have to tell you guys, 27 points, 59% true shooting. He's shooting 56% on pull-ups, 55% on floaters, 48% on fadeaways, and 43% on stepbacks. But when he's aggressive in asserting himself as a scorer, it just opens up everything on the floor. Why? Because Miami has to adjust and do different things defensively that just opens everything up. I mean, throughout this game, Carson, sending blitz is sending traps at Jamal Murray because you have to take him away. Well, when you're doing that, there was one play where Miami took advantage of that and Gabe Vincent rotated over and stole the ball because nobody else was there. Jokic was the only guy that Murray could hit for a pass and the Heat get something in transition. But it just puts your defense in rotation and... You have to do that, right? Because I could say here that, no, it's it's a bad strategy, right? The Miami Heat cannot do that for four quarters because the Nuggets will get them in rotation and they will eat and they will score damn near every possession because naturally you're going to have those switches throughout when the Nuggets are playing good offense. But when you blitz, you put your defense in rotation by themselves. Well, you have to do that because Murray is absolutely killing you. And that, that's a part of this, right? Is everybody gets mad at us, Carson, because we heap so much praise on the Nuggets. I want to give a lot of credit to Miami for the defense they played in this game. I thought they played great mm -hmm. defense, right? Like, 
that is what makes the Nuggets' efficiency on offense so much more special is they're going up against a Miami defense that is giving them fits. Uh, through two games, Miami had a defensive rating of 114. It's not great, but it's really impressive when you're going up against a team that had an offensive rating of over 120 through three playoff rounds, a team that was damn near unstoppable. You bring that back down to earth, and Miami's done that by throwing them different actions on each of these pick-and-roll sets, by switching to the zone when they need to and forcing them to change their own strategy. I think Denver had the counters in this game, and I think Jamal being aggressive uh, from the jump really got them in rotation. But again, that's what makes this so impressive is that this is not easy. Miami is making this hard. Active hands. They played really physical throughout this game, and they just couldn't slow them down. I mean, I think when Jamal Murray is like this, when Jamal Murray is aggressive from the jump, when he is knocking down tough looks, when he is looking for his own shot, looking to score, and being aggressive throughout this game, the Nuggets are damn near unbeatable. Like, this is... And they didn't even... And that's the thing, guys, is Miami played great defense... Jokic and Murray showed up, but this Nuggets team wasn't firing on all cylinders. It wasn't a classic Nuggets performance. Like, Aaron Gordon took advantage of mismatches, but MPJ didn't shoot the ball well, didn't play great defense. Contavious Caldwell-Pope didn't shoot well, wasn't playing great defense. Um, Bruce Brown didn't have a classic Bruce Brown game. Christian Brown deserves a ton of praise. Great cutting from him. Just a, I think we're going to have to found the Christian Brown fan club, Carson. But what I'm getting at is that's why it was such an impressive win for Denver. They win by such an impressive margin against a really tough Denver defense. And the role guys didn't really play all that great. It was Jokic and Murray exerting their force on Miami by themselves. And they're an unstoppable two-man game when they are firing like this. And that is why me and Carson ranked them as our best duo in basketball. You saw it on full display tonight. Uh, when Jamal Murray is like this, I, I think the Nuggets are unbeatable, Carson. They truly are one of the all-time great offenses. And I say that with confidence. Obviously, Jokic is the driver. But Jamal is one of the best pure shot makers alive and therefore one of the best playoff scorers alive. And that is a trend that has consistently held true. But you mentioned how productive Denver is in this game, even with a lot of the role guys not having standout performances. Logan, they make five threes in this game, five of 18 from beyond the arc. And it never for a moment felt like that mattered. And by the way, that's been the case in two out of three games in this series. They put up these dominant offensive performances against a great defense with very limited shooting performances from behind the arc. You just don't see that. And yet with this Denver team, they are an unbelievable shooting team, but they are perfectly capable of that. I love Jamal Murray, man. I am as big of a Jamal Murray fan as there is, and I've literally said before, I'm not a Denver Nuggets fan, but for four, maybe even five years, I've owned a shirt that says this guy loves Jamal Murray. I just think he has such a natural beauty to his game with the level of skill that is on display so consistently. His variety as a shot maker, his ability to go to the turnarounds, to the step backs, to the pull-up mid-range game. He's just a fantastic scorer of the basketball, and I thought this was a great all-around Jamal performance as you laid out, and a big part of that is that he was able to hold up against those traps and blitzes and continue to have great value as a playmaker, and that he competed on the glass like he did with the 10 boards, three of those offensive. Now, it wasn't his best all-around defensive effort. I thought there were some moments where he was bad. I also thought there were some moments where there were two different spots where he battled really well with position for Jimmy, who was trying to post him up, poked the ball out, made him work. But it comes down to the shot making. It comes down to how unstoppable that two-man game is. In the first half, his patience out of pick and roll, his ability to just sort of snake his way to his spot, get into the lane. And then the short mid-range game is just ridiculous. So I think he has to be acknowledged as a top 20, close to top 15 player alive because of how much his brilliant shot making and the fact that he can kill you from the mid-range on either side of the bucket and that he can be so lethal as a catch-and-shooter and as a pull-up shooter and as a weapon out of handoffs from beyond the arc. So few guys have that. You can compare him to a Trey Young who can be this awesome floor raiser but there's a big distinction in terms of floor raising and championship complementary skill sets. And I think with Trey, you look at his deficiencies as a shot maker. You look at his stylistic 
rigidity, how much he sort of condemns everybody else to play at his own pace and he's going to dictate every possession and there's just a ceiling on how that can go with a player of his caliber, his reliance on getting to the line, which is not as reliable, his fact that he is a glaring defensive liability to an extent that Jamal just is not in a playoff setting. All these things come together and you look at Jamal and the level that he has reached as a playmaker and how insane he is as a pure shot maker and I'd rather have him. If it's who do I want as my number one to try to compete in the first round, yeah, maybe it's still Trey, but this isn't just a byproduct of Jamal playing with the best offensive player alive that I say this because Jamal himself does special stuff so routinely. You compare him to a guy like Jalen Brown, who's obviously going to be much more productive in the regular season and has all of these athletic traits and this awesome physical frame and has this ceiling as a jump shooter that can be so imposing, but... Jamal's just so much more complete as a scorer, so much more consistent with his jump shooting, so much better as a playmaker, so much more refined offensively all around. People talk about the handle limitations with Jalen. So I just think when you're comparing him to guys in that tier, you have to put him with the Brunsons and the Foxes of the world. And all these guys do it in different ways, but those are incredibly versatile shot makers, guys who aren't going to constrict the game force everybody to play exactly to their pace and their style, but who can dictate how a game is played and who can kill you with the mid-range game and attack mismatches in their various ways. De'Aaron with his quickness, Jalen Brunson with his post-up game and mid-range shot making, and Jamal with a combination of the pull-up jump shooting from beyond the arc and his ability to get into that mid-range and lane area. So they are a historically great duo. We've talked about this, but the duos to include two guys averaging 27 points per game in title runs. Kobe and Shaq did it once. Katie and Steph did it once. And Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic are currently on pace to do it. And by the way, that's with maybe the highest level of aggregate playmaking from these two duos too. You could argue Steph and KD there, but Jamal is playmaking at a high level right now. So he deserves all the respect in the world, but... We do have to talk about Jokic, too, here, because this is just another historic performance. They showed it on the broadcast. The 30-20-10 games in NBA history, Kareem has won in the playoffs. Wilt has won. Nikola Jokic now has three. What do you have to say about what he did tonight? I mean, he's just... He, you can't stop him. He's unstoppable, guys. He's He's unstoppable, and he's so advantageous in how he gets he gets these switches. Um throughout this game, man. It's just... Jokic just makes the game look too easy, man. It's It feels routine at this point. And again, like people are get so mad at us because we're not giving credit to the Heat, man. I thought Bam did a phenomenal job and has done a phenomenal job at, yeah. uh, defending him. I talk about Miami switching up their... Uh, their looks defensively, right, out of pick and rolls, how they're switching to the zones too. Bam has done that routinely through this series, and that's something that you have to do on these superstars uh, in the playoffs and just in games in general. I think Jason made a great point of this a couple weeks ago, right? Um, You need different looks at different guys because you keep giving them the same look out of the pick and roll. Guess what? Jamal's going to find that guy every time, or he's going to get to that spot every time. So you have to switch these looks. Bam has done a tremendous job in this series at not only being really, really physical with Jokic in a way that I don't think you could, right? I don't even think Anthony Davis was as physical with Jokic as Bam has been not close. in this series. Not even close. And that's something that you have to do. Bam also is strong enough and stout enough to where he can be physical. It's not just, you know, it's not Chet Holmgren down there, or, you know, a uh, a traffic cone, you know, he's not just getting knocked over down there uh, like a, he's not a scarecrow. Bam's being physical with the guy. He's also fronting him at times. He's getting behind him. He's got really active hands when Jokic is uh, in the paint going up with a shot. Bam has played tremendous defense on Nikola Jokic throughout this series. Bam has, is one of the best defensive players on planet Earth. And it's just not enough. It's just too easy, man. He gets those switches, and there were a bunch of them in this game because you have to. Out of that pick and roll, Jokic just took advantage of them. The tough shot making on full display where if Jokic takes a three, man, at this point, I'm expecting it to go in. The running actions for him as a catch and shooter. It's a lot of the similar stuff that we see night in, night out, man, but you can't take it for granted. It does look routine. It does look effortless. It does look easy. That's what makes it special against some of the best defense I've seen playing on Jokic 
all year long. It just doesn't matter, man. And it's I know we've talked about this throughout these playoffs, but the combination of the two, man, the picture poison. You have to overhelp on Jamal Murray mm-hmm. when he's firing like this because you got to take the mid-range away. That leaves Jokic open, a lot of opportunities in the mid-range to splash, to take advantage. You know, it's not like he's doing anything different than we've seen through this playoff run, Carson, but it is just as equally unstoppable uh, as it's always been. I'm so impressed that just you can't take it away, man. There's no counter. There's no answer. I know Colin said this. Jokic is an unsolvable problem, man. He is an unsolvable Mm -hmm. puzzle, man. There's no answer for him. It's as simple as that. It is, dude. And I've given a million Jokic spiels. Over the years, I went back and found one that I did from the bubble the other day. YouTube recommended it to me, actually, and it was a pretty funny watch. And obviously, Jokic took another leap after that, but I have just been in love with his game for so long. I think he is a genius and completely unparalleled in the history of the game when you're looking at his skill set. But I've said before, we're looking at a tier one offensive peak from him in NBA history. Put him in that tier with only Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Steph Curry, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, because both those guys are, all of those guys, I should say, are unbelievable scorers and playmakers, which I think is a requirement to be in that top tier. And I think he is in the midst of a tier one playoff run of all time. Put it up there with 91-93 Jordan. Put it up there with... 2012-2016 LeBron, put it up there with 2003 Tim Duncan, 2001 Shaq, and 94-95 Akeem. But I want Akeem specifically on where he ranks among the true offensive greats of all time because you mentioned Jason Tim, friend of the show, does hoops tonight, obviously, at the volume, which is just incredible basketball analysis, and anybody who isn't already a regular viewer should absolutely go check out. But he texted me during this game and was like, I think this is the most unstoppable offensive player I've ever seen. And I praised the Lord above, and I said, thank you, Jason. I would like to do an hour show on this sometime. And he said that the only parallel to him is 2018 LeBron. And I think that there's a clear consistency between the two of them, which is, number one, the unstoppable physical imposition and paint scoring. And how you just collapse a defense with such regularity when you have that ability. Obviously, LeBron, it's downhill driving with his power and explosiveness at that size. With Jokic, it is the ability to post up and cook anybody one-on-one to get those looks around the free throw line as a roller and then put the defense in a predicament where a four-on-three for Jokic, you're just dead, dude. I mean, you really are. And... uh, Those things just translate so consistently. When you can make great decisions and get yourself high probability looks in the paint no matter what, how does anybody take you away? Because Jokic is shooting 47% from three in these playoffs, right? That's unbelievable, obviously, but is so secondary to what he's doing in the paint night to night. It certainly helps when you have to respect him as a floor spacer at all times, and it opens up even more passing lanes for him, and he can kill you with that pump and go game and get to the floaters. But it's really the fact that He will make his hooks with 65 to 70% efficiency, and he will make his floaters with 65 to 70% efficiency, and then he can make every single pass in the book. And it's every action, dude. Like we said, handoffs, right? He's too good a passer. He's such a massive body as a screener. Pick and roll, unstoppable. And post-up particularly, dude. I mean, he's the number one post scorer in these playoffs, and you talk about it looking easy. I mean, he is shooting these turnarounds on Bam Adebayo, one of the best defensive players on the planet, and it looks like a warm-up shot. He had that one transition opportunity where he sealed off Kevin Love, this 6'8", big, bulky guy, like he was a guard so he could go to work on him quickly and attack that mismatch. It's just nobody has a prayer of guarding him. So I think when we're looking at the three greatest offensive playoff runs in NBA history, You're putting Nikola Jokic in tier with only the best of Michael Jordan and LeBron James. I think you have 1991 Jordan, which was the best playmaking version of him that we ever saw. Eight and a half assists per game. Completely destroyed the Lakers in the finals. And really the most efficient version of him we ever saw. 7% better true shooting than average in that run. That's compared to league average. While he's dropping his 31 a night. Just unstoppable downhill force. Awesome pull-up jump shooting. And again some of the best playmaking in the league. Then you do have 2018 LeBron, like Jason mentioned. Now, I don't have 2018 as a tier one 
playoff run in NBA history purely because they didn't win the title. Everybody who I have there did win the title, but you could certainly argue it is the highest level LeBron has played at, and I think offensively, it is. I think it is certainly the highest level that he's ever played at. 34-9-9, and 6.5% better true shooting than league average. And now you look at Jokic and what he's doing in this run, which is basically 30-13-10 on 63% true shooting and has been so consistent throughout. And I just wonder, like, what is the game from this playoff run that stands above the rest? Like, what is the Jokic moment that you pick out? Is it when he went into that rock fight in Minnesota and even in a loss scored 43 super efficiently in the first round? Or is it then when you turn to the rock fight against Phoenix when he scored 39 and obviously is dominating on the glass and even those two weren't his best playmaking games, but still is so unbelievably proficient in that category at all times. Or is it the 53-point game against Phoenix where he also has 11 assists, right? And they just could not single cover him, although they decided to try. Is it the 34-21-14 clinic against LA in Game 1, which I thought was as surgical an offensive performance as I've ever seen? Or maybe it's this one. Like, it's just, there's so many from every single series. There's a level of consistent brilliance. There is a level of scoring and playmaking every single night out of so many different actions that really is unparalleled. So I'm sorry, even compared to a Steph Curry, who I think is firmly in that top tier, and I would put Bird and Magic at five and six if we're ranking all-time offensive peaks. I would probably go Magic above Bird, but I think the top four is MJ, LeBron, Jokic, and Steph. The only area in which Steph is lacking is that physical imposition and the direct playmaking that that feeds into. Obviously, Steph's gravity, the constant off-ball attention that he demands, that is unparalleled. But I do think it matters when you can get to your spot every possession and then force the opponent to pick their poison. And that's what peak MJ did. That's what peak LeBron did. And that's what peak Nikola Jokic is doing right now better than anybody else ever. And dude, something... If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating Cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. 
And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But I think that Jokic has an advantage of over those two is the tough shot making in the paint. And what I mean by that is, you know, MJ and LeBron, these great physical downhill forces who can finish at the rack or some of the greatest finishers of all time can just get to the rim with ease. The thing that makes Jokic so much more, I won't say more unstoppable than those guys, but more unstoppable than anybody else on the planet today is that in-between area where he's shooting 55% in the paint non-restricted area to go along with shooting 68% in the restricted area in these playoffs. Like, Again, I don't mean this hyperbolically, right? Carson's talking about him being up there with MJ and LeBron, and I don't think that's hyperbolic. I think that's us being in the moment and appreciating what we're seeing with our own eyes in the moment. Jokic might have the greatest touch of any NBA player that I have ever seen. And it's like, right, against MJ and LeBron, if you have a great rim protector, and I'm not saying this is a catch-22, a catch-all, you can put a great rim protector there and hope that he can block a shot or he can be physical and send him to the line. It's like... There's no countering that in-between. You step up on him, guess what? There's a backdoor cutter, and Jokic is going to spot him. If you don't, it doesn't matter if you get into his grill. He's hitting that tough shot making. I've never seen anybody that has this in-between area touch that is so great at being physical and getting to the rack as well that can also space the floor like this. Like, he's as complete a scorer as there has ever been in the NBA while being a, a genius passer. Like, The in-between area is what I think makes Jokic stand out so much more than anybody else, is that he has maybe the greatest touch that I've ever seen, and there is no counter for that because you just can't be everywhere all at once, man. And that's what makes him so much more unstoppable than anybody else, in my opinion. I've been saying he has the best paint touch, short-range touch ever. And I don't want to make it a that's an advantage for him versus LeBron or MJ because peak LeBron or MJ, they were just getting all the way to the rim, right? It's just totally different skill sets. Bottom line is they are both imposing themselves in the paint and then they are playmaking at this incredibly high level. But good God, dude, I just hope people acknowledge it. And you mentioned it, man. Like I want to give the Miami defense a lot of credit because I still think they have been so impressive these last two games in particular. The level of ball pressure that they apply consistently, and it was especially in that second quarter that it was just eye-popping. Nobody else in the league does that. The press zone that they really started to implement in Game 2, so effective, right? Just draining shot clock. And by the way, still in this fourth quarter, the Nuggets had some trouble with, and then making it incredibly difficult to get the ball to Jokic in that free-throw line area with all of the fronting that they're doing. They're fronting overall. I mean, the dog that these guys have, like Gabe Vincent, bro, at whatever he is, just a tick above six feet, able to challenge Jokic in a way that very few players are. Their consistency with which they vary looks and how well they fight for position on every possession, how attached they stay off ball. But on the glass, dude, I mean, even though they kind of got schooled there in this one, nobody has made Jokic work on the glass like Bam Adebayo has. And yeah, I know that Jokic gets 21 boards in this game, but Bam has 17, and Bam out-rebounded him through the first two games. Like, he always has a body on him. He is outworking him, bottom line, on the glass. So, they're super impressive. And you know what the Nuggets' offensive rating is in this series, Logan? It's 121. And that's part of why I thought after Game 2, there was a bit of an overreaction to, oh man, these Miami adjustments have been so brilliant and the Nuggets have a ton of work to do. Yes, Miami did good stuff, undeniably, right? Putting Jimmy on Jamal Moore was effective. Going K-Love in the starting lineup was effective in Game 2. Single covering Jokic more, I thought it was a bit overplayed how effective that was, but yes, they didn't get the shooters going as much. MPJ and KCP were very quiet, even though Jokic absolutely ate them alive. All those things were true, right? But the Nuggets posted an offensive rating of, I believe, 124 in that game. Logan, like, it wasn't about that. It was about their defensive effort, and it was about, really, Miami's ability to create high offense out of pick and roll, where they were just absolutely lethal. So, 
Nobody has been this consistently brilliant offensively, and the Nuggets are in a top tier all time in those conversations right now. We've said it before, they have a higher offensive rating than any champ in NBA history within this century. I honestly think they are the second best offense only to the peak Warriors. It is unbelievable the shot quality Jokic generates for them every night, how fantastic Jamal is in the supporting role with his pull-up jump shooting and then the supporting cast that they do have, even though they weren't great tonight. But I do want to give some more Nugget shout-outs because Christian Brown was fantastic and Logan, you talk about founding the CB fan club. Unfortunately, I think we may have missed the window there because our buddy Gabe Swartz, who went to high school with him, has already had it. And he got pissed at me when we did our preview show for the finals with Jason, and I described Christian Brown as okay talking about Denver's depth. And listen, I think I'm on the record as a pro CB guy. I like his game, but at that point, he was averaging, what, two points per game in the playoffs. And my point was Miami's deep bench has had more guys have consistent impacts throughout these playoffs, which is true. But He just gets it, man. He just fundamentally has that dog in him, but he's so smart. He is so good at being in the right spots at the right time. He is so aggressive and fearless as a finisher. Athletic too, sure, but bottom line is just going to go right at you. He's going to run the floor hard in transition. He's going to do a great job of cutting off of a Jamal Murray trap or off of Jokic drawing a second defender out of the high post. And the hustle plays are just incredible, dude. I mean, even the one bad moment for him in this entire game when he breaks that three, right? Guess what? He's the one with the ball after that, getting an offensive board. Dude is so impressive. And then Aaron Gordon, man. I love Aaron Gordon. I think that dude is just a fantastic all-around basketball player. And he had a couple rough moments in the Lakers series just in terms of being a non-floor spacer. But this game, he easily could have gone 19-10-5 on 8-10 of shooting, right? makes a couple more free throws, has a couple more very makeable finishes around the rim. Now, of course, those are weaknesses in his game. He's a bad free throw shooter, and he does have that bull in a china shop tendency where he's not the most skilled, graceful finisher around the rim, and especially in these settings where he's getting these mismatches and he needs to attack quickly before he draws that help, You know, especially if it's from a guy who he doesn't see coming. I get all of that, why he can be a bit frantic and out of control, but man, he just bullies these smaller guys always seals them off in transition, always willing to post them up, always going to attack the glass with just ferocity, and really good playmaking from him in this game. Five assists and is a guy who you trust to make reads in transition, who can do some of that decision-making out of the high post and whatnot. And I love seeing guys grow by playing alongside great passers and in great offensive systems that incentivize passing and ball movement and unselfishness and high IQ decisions. Talked about it with Kevon Looney, how he's grown as a warrior to be this awesome decision maker out of handoff, spotting cutters and making the right reads consistently. Aaron Gordon isn't at that level, but it has been something that's impressed me from him throughout this playoff run. And I thought this game was a great example of it. So he's throwing good entry passes to Jokic too. Like the guy is just balling out across the board. MPJ still very quiet, not getting good looks. Are you concerned about what's going on with him at this point? You know, I'm concerned with MPJ just kind of getting into into rhythm, right? Like when it, mm-hmm. it seems like when MPJ, I was I was really happy with MPJ's defensive effort in this game. I was happy with MPJ's effort on the really? last. Two, well, I don't some of the game. There were some la- like in the first quarter. MPJ was got turned around a couple of times, but I thought he did a good job on the boards too. MPJ is the type of guy where if he gets that first look to fall, it's like he can go on a run. But when it when that first mm-hmm. one's off or when he takes a like I think his first shot attempt in this game was a fader where it's contested in the mid-range and I'm like, "Come on, MPJ, that's just not a good look." And he bricks it. And I thought it set a it set a bad precedent for him. Uh, the rest of the game. And I think MPJ is just a guy where if he sees that first one go in, it's a it's an igniter where he can just get going and start knocking down stuff. But if those first shots don't fall, it's like he gets in that quicksand, that little bit of a sinkhole where it's like, uh-oh, now we're searching, now we're scrambling. But it's part of what you mentioned with Miami's defense, Carson. I am nervous in the sense that, you know, they're not leaving him. Most of the time, Miami is leaving a guy attached like glue to MPJ where mm-hmm. you're not going to get this shot off. I don't know if Denver's going to have to run 
more deliberate actions for him, like a DHO getting him in rhythm where, you know, they're Mm -hmm. setting up shots for him, pin downs in the corner, having him come off because Denver's not. And they haven't really needed to, right? The Jamal Murray-Jokic two-man tandem has been so effective. It's like, well, we don't even really need to run deliberate actions for MPJ. Yeah, you know, I am a little nervous. See, three games, he hasn't really looked great shooting the ball in any of them. You know, he's had his impact in other areas of the game. But, yeah, I am worried about him offensively because Miami's not giving him anything easy. They're not leaving him. They're not giving him these open looks that he's had all playoffs long. So, if he continues to struggle, I think Denver is going to have to draw up some stuff for him or, you know, I don't know, look to him less. But it hasn't really mattered. It would have mattered in game two, I think, if he strokes a few more of those. You know, mm-hmm. that changes the tide of the game where maybe Denver wins it. It's not as simple as that, but, you know, little shots like that do come a long way, especially in a three-point game. Yeah, I, I am a little nervous. I think he's just a streaky guy, man. You know, I mean, if... Mm-hmm. If he doesn't get going, I think Denver's going to have to draw up real actions for him to get him going and getting him in rhythm because he has to become a factor at some point in this series, right? Like, we need to see good MPJ. I mean, arguably, dude, MPJ has been, like, the, what, fifth or sixth best nugget in this series? Like, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. it's been Jokic, Murray, probably Gordon, KCP, then maybe Bruce Brown or Christian Brown. Like, MPJ has really not been... One of the most effective nuggets on the floor in any of these finals games. and uh, uh, Well, game one, he was off shooting, but he did have a pretty impressive multifaceted impact in that game. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I mean, well-rounded, but the MPJ that we're getting, I don't know, man. It, it's a scary sight when the guy who likes touching the ball and shooting it every time he touches the rock isn't hidden because... I don't know. It can lead mm-hmm. to some some bad stuff. Luckily, they haven't yep. needed him as much in this series. But yeah, Carson, I am worried. He needs to get his stroke going. Uh, and I think it does matter at a point in this series. We're going to need him to hit some big shots. I think it's what you said, right? It's not a matter of forcing the issue, but they are doing a better job of staying attached to both him and KCP, who also has been very quiet, whereas we've seen him, obviously, light up the Lakers, for example, when they were digging on Jokic post-ups, boom, easy kick out. KCP is a very willing and ready and excellent shooter, and he crushed them. So this Nuggets offense has still been great in spite of those two guys being no-shows for these last couple games, which is insane. But I agree, especially when it comes to MPJ, there's a few more handoffs. I mean, you create really high-quality looks out of that, and I do think it's important that he gets into a rhythm. KCP, again, very quiet. I'm not as worried about it. I don't think he's as essential. He's just got to be ready to attack the opportunities that he does have. Such a great closeout attacker. He hasn't really been able to do that in this series. But the Nuggets are humming nonetheless. Dude, one last shout-out. Just Bruce Brown's hands in this game. Three blocks. I mean, I thought he affected a couple more that didn't show up on the stat sheet with deflections of some kind. Really, really impressive stuff. And this Nuggets team, man, they do not look like your traditional modern champion. Part of that is team construction, not going out and getting your splashy free agent, which is really an anomaly. I mean, if you look at every recent champion, the Bucks are as homegrown as they come, but they added an all-star in Drew Holiday. The Warriors last year, right? Mostly, obviously, the same core guys. Andrew Wiggins, though, is a very big trade. Maybe that's the one where you can also look at and say, okay, that's really mostly done from within their infrastructure without making that big, splashy star acquisition. But then, obviously, you look at the Warriors. When they added KD, the entire Cavs Big 3 was a manufactured team. The entire Heat Big 3 was a manufactured team. The Toronto Raptors traded for Kawhi Leonard for one season, and then he was gone. He was a hired assassin for them. The Nuggets, of course, have done a great job of acquiring guys from other situations. KCP, Bruce Brown, Aaron Gordon, all of them at quite good value, by the way. But they haven't followed that mold of going out and getting that star from somewhere else. I also think this is the most post-heavy team in relation to at least the league that they are existing in. Since the 2011 Dirk Mavs and the only team led by a more conventional post-up big. Some people will say Giannis. Giannis initiates so much from the perimeter, so much transition. I mean, obviously, he's 6'11". He is listed as a power forward if you want to consider him fine. But this sort of archetype of guys who are really doing a lot of work out of the post, it's been a long time. 
Jokic is incredibly versatile, but leading post scorer in these playoffs. Nuggets have the highest post frequency. That's a rarity in the modern NBA to lead to winning at this level. And then the ultimate one, and I think the question that plagued them throughout this year, even as they were doing these incredible things offensively, a team with a defensive liability at center, which I do still believe Jokic is, even as like his biggest fan in the world. I think that just... I mean, he's a non-rim protector, right? We saw how Bam was able to just absolutely uh, torch him out of the deep drop. Same with Jimmy Butler. You just can't trust his quickness getting up higher to the level. And then when he does get up higher to the level, they were also getting crushed. He does things well. He's very smart. Uh, he's a great rebounder. He has really good hands. All of that is true, but it's just massive athletic limitations put a very hard cap on him we've really never seen a team win a title with a defensive liability at center and as a team defense to be outside the top 10 the only ones that we've seen do it this century are the 2001 Lakers literally one of the greatest teams of all time I mean the most dominant playoff run of all time they get a pass that was simply a matter of effort and then the 2018 Warriors who again the year before that had had the second best defense in the league one of the greatest teams ever a matter of effort so Outside of those defending champs, we haven't seen a newcomer rise to the pinnacle of the league without a great defense in this century. It is consistently considered like one of the bars you have to hit to be a title team. Top 10 on both sides of the ball. And the Denver Nuggets were not this year. And yet here they are. I certainly think that they're going to be the champs. But let's talk about the Miami side of this a bit more because Jimmy did get going some more in this one. What did you see out of him? Yeah, we can start with Jimmy. I mean, I think that he did a phenomenal job at attacking anybody not named Aaron Gordon in this one. And I thought the surrounding pieces uh, for the Heat did a great job. Not just Bam, everybody setting screens to open up the floor and get a mismatch on to Jimmy. If that's Kyle Lowry, if that's Duncan Robinson, if that's Max Struess. I mean, whoever had another guy on them, they were screening deliberately, getting that switch, and it worked a lot, man. Jimmy in the first half may not converted a bunch of attempts, was a lot more physical, was a lot more aggressive at getting downhill. They need that. Jimmy is their star offensive player. He's the best offensive player for the Heat. They need him to carry that workload. And even into the second half, I thought Jimmy was passive at some point, especially late in the game, and I was like, Jimmy, yeah, we can't have you keep kicking out and settling for, you know, 30-foot threes, 28-foot threes. I need you to be a little more aggressive, but... Again, that's something tangible that I think Miami can attack the rest of this series. You know, that's one area where I really think that they can win those matchups is getting those switches every single possession down. And Jimmy posting up, too, where guys are helping mm -hmm. off of shooters and Jimmy is spotting wide-open guys. They just have that advantage. There's not an answer for Jimmy. And when he gets that single post up against a smaller guy, you have to help off. It opens up so much more. And... Overall, offensively, I was impressed by Miami, right? This is a loss, but I thought Miami did a lot of great things offensively. I thought we saw some great contributions again from uh, Duncan Robinson, uh, Max Struess. Struess hit this one, ooh, this nasty skip pass to the corner to Cody Martin out of a pick and roll. I um, mean, we saw some good sets from Miami. We're out of the pick and roll. They're setting up open looks for shooters where there's a bad rotation on the backside for Denver. I think Denver has to clean that up. I thought Bam tonight was great when he got those opportunities on the inside. I mean, early, I thought we were in for a show, Carson. Bam was hitting all those mm -hmm. mid-range tough shots. And I have to say, too, I think it's a bit of a mistake giving him all those looks, Carson. Uh just because if you let Bam get into rhythm early, man, I just think it sets him up. And consistently through game one, game two, and game three, giving him those looks, he's been able to get into a rhythm early where he is just knocking down every shot he takes. And I want to give a lot of credit to Bam. We already gave him his flowers defensively. It seemed like every action that they started with Bam at the top of the key was leading to great offense in the first half. And I think they consistently need to go to him more in the second half too. The DHOs, the screens with whoever at the top of the key, just picking on Jokic on defense and then opening up that space for Bam in the middle of the floor just leads to good offense. And I thought they got away from that in the second half. I, again, they weren't terribly efficient, but I thought this was a really good offensive game from Bam and Jimmy and just how they opened up the floor. And again, three-point shooting variance is a big thing with Miami. They don't shoot well in this one. They shot 17 of 35 mm -hmm. in their win in game two. They shoot 11 of 35 in this one. 
you know, they've got to shoot better from behind the arc, but they also have to generate better shots. I think that starts with putting Jimmy on the low block by getting Jimmy those switches. And I think it starts by running more offense through Bam at the top of the key with DHOs, with screening. It just leads to better offense. And I thought they got away from that a little bit in the second half. But overall, man, I know a lot of people have been mad at us for not heaping praise on Miami throughout this series. Even though it's a loss, I was very impressed with Miami and the resilience, too. Again, they're down in the fourth quarter, Carson. They trimmed this thing to 10 late. I was really impressed with their activity and their effort on the boards, especially Bam, man. There's a series Mm -hmm. at the end of this game where Bam gets three straight offensive boards and finally ends up getting a bucket. Like, I know we've said it throughout these playoffs. There is no more team, I think, you can say in the NBA today, I don't think there's an NBA team in the history of the league that has more dog in them than the Miami Heat. <laughs> like, I, they, they flashed that stat up um, through these playoffs. When trailing by more than 10 going into the fourth quarter, the Heat are 4-6. and six. The rest of the NBA is 1-41. and 41. You know, they've got seven comebacks to 12 and more points heading into the fourth quarter. They really are the most resilient team I've ever seen, and that is... At this point, we can't even, like, dismiss it. Like, it is a tangible Mm -hmm. asset that Miami has that they just never give up, that you can never count them out in any single game. It's a real factor. But, again, man, in a loss, I was really impressed with Miami's resilience, with Jimmy and Bam and the offense they were able to create, and the defense they played. Like, this is a really encouraging game, I think, for Miami, even though they kind of got the dog walked on them in this one. I think it's an encouraging game for them, to maybe not encouraging but I think that they played better than the final deficit Mm -hmm. which is 15 points like compared to game one which I believe ended up at 13 right they got completely dominated in that game and this one very competitive throughout the first half third quarter Denver starts to pull away but you talk about the resilience I mean of course it's a real thing dude it's like the thing they were showing the stats about seven double-digit comebacks in these playoffs uh, plus what was it 90 point differential in the fourth quarter like it's just unbelievable what they are consistently capable of doing I thought that this was a really promising game offensively from their stars and I agree with you it came down to the supporting cast just not making shots at that same level of course 48 percent from deep Heat fans are going to get pissed and say it's not an outlier, it's not an anomaly because they've done it so many times. Fine, don't use that word. It's a hell of a shooting night. It's not something that you can expect every single game. So they come back to earth. They have a bad shooting night in this one, 11 of 35 from deep, 31%. I thought that they did still get some real quality looks from deep for their supporting cast. It wasn't as disastrous a defensive performance from Denver, but there were some real lapses in that first half. MPJ and Jamal Murray, I thought, making some mistakes, them exploiting Jokic uh, and his reluctance to come out to the perimeter and so shot quality was was very solid for them in some stretches and Jimmy I mean he was 6 of 16 in the first half but I loved the looks that he was getting he was getting those clean mid-range pull-ups when Jokic was playing a deep drop and he was hunting switches like hell going after KCP who's a good defender but Jimmy's just a football player man I mean he's too strong so those guys just bounce off of him and then he's getting the 10 to 12 footer same thing goes for when Jamal's matched up with him like you said everybody but Aaron Gordon he was bullying and then he started to make some more of those in the second half and Bam got off to a great start I mean he was awesome on the glass throughout It ends up being that in the second half, I thought they defended him better. I thought they did a better job of making him uncomfortable around the rim, right? You have like the Bruce Brown strip on him. I thought Jokic did a better job of recovering out of his high drop. They were giving him some backline help, and he was able to affect Bam on a couple of those looks. Bam's finishing around the rim just wasn't great in this game, but he gets the line a lot. He still ends up with his 21 points. I believe it is 22. Excuse me. The biggest thing, though, that his game is going to hinge on is that touch shot making. Like, in the home stretch of the Eastern Conference Finals, he could not make any of those. Those floaters, those mid-range jumpers from 8 to 16 feet, he was 4 of 16, 25%. And then, through the first three games of the Finals, he's 14 of 28. So he's 50%. He's taking those shots very willingly. He's getting those looks out of drop. He's sometimes creating them for himself out of the post, and he is pretty much nails on them. He's creating good offense. So when he is doing that, 
I mean, he's got to be in the conversation for a top 15 player alive, right? He becomes so imposing offensively. But you say, I don't know if I want to just give him those shots. I agree. You don't want to concede them without a contest. But overall in these playoffs, he's 41% from that range. And so the level that he's been at early in these finals, I don't know if that's necessarily what to expect from him every single night. He looks confident though, no? Oh, he sure does. And that's definitely a big difference because his confidence left him completely in those last few games against Boston. But I just think over a seven-game series, these things wax and wane. And for the most part, he's just been pretty money on those shots. My last thing on Miami would just be that I thought there should have been more Duncan Robinson minutes in this game because Duncan Robinson is an offensive game-breaker, dude. I mean, right, just the constant gravity and attention he demands as a shooter out of handoffs, out of the delay actions they've been running, his ability to cut uh, out of those actions and then finish really well around the rim, his playmaking, his pick-and-roll ball handling. Like, I just don't think, even if he's getting exploited defensively, he should only have 14 minutes in a game like this where they need somebody to bring that little bit of offensive spark on top of their stars. And Tyler Hero could have been a guy who filled that role too if he were available in this one. So... I don't want to overreact to that because Miami has swung with their perimeter shooting throughout these playoffs. They've swung with the level that their supporting cast can reach. All of that is true. I think more than anything, it's reassuring that they got a more aggressive, more effective scoring game from Jimmy because everybody had been talking about his health, how he didn't look like himself the last two games. And I feel like there's some legitimacy to that, right? Jimmy is hurt. We know that his ankle is hurt but I still think he's 85 to 90% of himself. That's what he looked like when he came back in the New York series and against Boston. He wasn't at the same insane level that he was before that, but I also don't think he was going to hold that up no matter what. There's just not a lot of possessions where I'm like, oh yeah, look, Jimmy's limited athletically there. That's what's causing this. So it was good to see him play a good game. It was good to see Bam uh, really excel in certain categories. And it comes down to them not having the same level of shooting and supporting cast production. But I do still feel really confident that Denver's going to win this series. And I don't think it goes seven. And that's been my stance throughout. I will say some of the conversations we were having after game one, I think, have aged poorly. Talking about this as like one of the uh, largest talent deficits in finals history. Maybe talent is still a weird way to put it. But this Miami team is shocker really good and uh, although I still do think a lot of what we said about how they aren't able to trip up Denver in the same way as they were these other teams expose their worst offensive tendencies because they don't have any force them into those mental mistakes I think that's true but I do think that Eric Spolstra is the best schematic coach that I've like watched night to night in the NBA with a level of sentience to where I can understand what's going on like the dude is an actual genius he is so good and these zone looks It'll be interesting to see if he ever busts them out earlier because you don't want to let Denver establish a rhythm, and we've seen them vary their coverages so much for that very reason. But the press mixed in with that, man. I mean, they're just stagnating more than they are because it's such a good zone, and they're not used to seeing it regularly throughout four quarters. So I wonder if they mix that in a bit more. But other than that, man, I don't know what the adjustment is. I just think Denver's better. I think Denver is the best offense in the league by far. I think they have the best offensive player in the league and the best player alive and a supporting cast that is really tremendously complimentary. So yeah, Miami's got a big edge defensively. Their coach is a genius. I just think Denver's better. You know, I think <laughs> I think Miami can play Denver harder than any other team that they've faced thus far, but I, to circle back to the conversation that we were having after game one, I don't think this is as drastic a talent deficit uh, as we talked about previously. I agree with you, mainly because I still think that Miami has the wealth of role players that can genuinely swing a game uh, mm -hmm. in comparison to Denver, and I think that's where it really matters. Like Christian Brown has a great game in this one, right? And they've got good role players. Bruce Brown off the bench, Jeff Green's, eh. But Miami has guys who can genuinely... <laughs> Gen genuinely swing games. Uh, Vincent with his shooting. Struess with his shooting. Duncan Robinson, who I completely agree with you. I don't know how, after he scores 10 points in the fourth quarter, uh, is stroking everything from deep, how you don't play him more. He's been one of Miami's best players. So I think you're right. I don't think the talent discrepancy as is as big, 
But something I was talking to my dad with about when I was back home, Carson, the reason that we stressed how big of a mismatch this was is still, if Miami were to win this title, I think it would be the biggest underdog story of all time. No doubt. And I don't mean like, you can point to anybody in any sport. I would put it on the level of like the 2007 Giants in the 2007 New England Patriots. Like, and I don't just mean that in them beating, you know, New England, right? Because NFL, it's a one-off game. And it was impressive that the Giants got to that game in general, right? Because they were 9-7 and seven in the regular season. They had to win all these games on the road. That's hard enough to do. That's comparable to Miami's run to the finals as well. The 8th seed, not having home court advantage through any of these series, slaying the dragon that is Giannis Antetokounmpo, slaying the dragon that is the Boston Celtics, who we thought were so much more talented, but also the fact that they were a shitty regular season team, that they were five minutes away from not being in the playoffs to the Chicago Bulls. Like, guys, Mm -hmm. it's not me and Carson hating on the Miami Heat. It is us recognizing reality and realizing what a big upset this would be in the grand scale of sports history. It would be a bigger underdog story than Rudy. And Rudy's small little ass was offsides, okay? So his sack doesn't even count. (laughs) He wasn't even on the team, you know? If the Miami Heat were to win this chip and could win this chip, right? We're only three games in. Sports are weird, man. I'm not going to count the Miami Heat out because they've proven me wrong every step of the way. What I'm saying, though, is still true. If the Miami Heat were to win the 2023 NBA Finals, it would be the greatest underdog story in the history of sports. I don't know if I have the breadth of knowledge to the entire world of sports to say that specifically. I do think they would be certainly the most surprising NBA champion ever. I don't think that that's even a question. But, man, are they good, dude. I mean, they just play basketball like nobody else. The level of sharpness, the defensive intensity, the schematic brilliance. I mean, they had four turnovers in this game, dude. Like, they just will never beat themselves. The only thing is the shooting variance. Like, and that's not something you can really fault them for. That happens to every team in the league. But a lot of respect, a lot of credit to the Miami Heat. Last thing to touch on real quickly here, just because this was a big story today. It was initially reported that Chris Paul had been waived by the Phoenix Suns. This is what Chris Haynes said. That has now been disproved concretely, it seems. They have not waived Chris Paul, but they're considering it along with perhaps stretching him or exploring trade options as sort of we've heard about for a few months. So, Logan, just quickly your thoughts on that. What do you think is going to happen with CP3 this offseason? So the way it works, it saves them more money in the long run if they stretch out his contract. It opens up more avenues for them this free agency, although if they waived him straight up, it would save 15 mil in cap, which I believe mm-hmm. opens up like the hard mid-level exception. So basically, uh, by cutting CP, they would be trading – not trading, they would be swapping essentially CP to free agency for uh, a better role player who think they fit uh, better with the construction of their current roster. And I think it's the right move, right? I know a lot of people were scratching their head about this, right? You know, how are they going to get a better player than Chris Paul? Well, it's not about straight up getting a better player than Chris Paul. It's about getting someone that fits better with the new core that you have built around Devin Booker and Kevin Durant, right? I think what we saw from the Suns during this playoff run signals to us that they should make Devin Booker the primary initiator, the de facto point guard. He may not be listed as the point guard. With Kevin Durant and D. Book, I think you should just split playmaking duties through them when it comes playoff time. I think that is the correct avenue. So you swap him out, Chris Paul, with a better defender, a better floor spacer. I think that's what they should do. But I think this also signals to us, Carson, that Maybe DeAndre Ayton is on the move too, right? Because they're not just making this Mm -hmm. move because, you know, Chris Paul's washed. I think Chris Paul has taken a legitimate step back, but it's more because of the money. He's making $30 million. So is DeAndre Ayton with the new CBA uh, that the NBA has announced, which I think uh, if you guys want a complete breakdown of the new CBA and its implications, uh, check out NBA.com, check out CBS Sports. They've written two great articles on that. Bill Simmons uh, and Ryan Rosillo did a great breakdown on YouTube that you guys should check out. Uh, for more in-depth look at the CBA. Uh, But they've got a clear space to make a better rotation. They're just not in title contention. You have built a win-now team with Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. This window is going to close very fast. You need a better 
core of role players who can step in and genuinely swing games who are not net negatives. So, yeah, I don't think CP is going to be a Phoenix Sun next season, Carson. I think there's some interesting landing destinations. Uh, I think the Lakers are an interesting spot if they lose D'Angelo Russell just in terms of uh, a guy who can set the table for everybody. Again, man, you're not getting star CP. You're not getting a great scorer anymore. You're getting a guy who can play make, who can make good decisions, who's kind of a liability on defense. You know, he's not a complete player at this point in his career, but I still think he can help a team. If the 76ers lose James Harden, if he goes to Houston, I think he could be an interesting fit there in Philadelphia, uh, helping set the table for everybody there. And then I think uh, maybe a spot like the Clippers, and I know some people aren't going to like this, but I still think the Clippers need a real point guard. This is no disrespect to Russell Westbrook. I still think Westbrook is better suited in a six-man command-the-bench unit, take all the touches with a bench, and propel that bench unit to being great. And I think Chris Paul could step in and be a real point guard who could set the table for you know one of the best star-scoring wing duos in basketball in Paul George and Kawhi. Now, uh, I think the Clippers would be a bit of a geriatric uh, home, Carson, you know, with <laughs> Leonard, George, and Paul uh, all on the wrong side of 30, all have dealt with a bevy of injuries. But I think those are all interesting destinations for CP. Bottom line is uh, I think that CP is not going to be a son uh, come free agency. And, uh, you know, I think that there's still a lot of teams that should be interested in bringing him on. What's so strange is that he apparently wants to be a son. Like, that's what the reporting is now. That's what Sham said, I believe. So then you look at, like, well, is it going to be a stretch or is it going to be a wave? And then you hope he clears waivers and then you bring him back on a significantly reduced contract. Clearly, there's some sort of tomfoolery and shenanigans going on here. If he's not in Phoenix, I think he will be a Laker. I think that that makes too much sense when you're looking at his criteria, wanting to play for a title contender. LeBron, obviously, is a good friend of his. And I think basketball fit, it makes a lot of sense, dude. D'Lo, too erratic, too spotty as a decision maker, too reliant on his difficult shot making to be a guy who you can lean on night to night offensively if you want to win a title, I think. So swap him out for one of the great table setter tempo controllers ever especially given how much I think AD needs offense created for him and that LeBron is increasingly wanting to go away from running a ton of on ball stuff heavy pick and roll right as we saw over and over again in these playoffs so CP3 would be perfect bro feeding LeBron and AD post-ups running pick and roll with those guys it would just be really fun to watch and he is still a really good basketball player he's not a guy you can rely on heavily as a scorer because he's so reliant on that mid-range shot making where he took a step back this year, which maybe he could revert to previous form there, but I don't know that it's likely. And yeah, defensively, he's going to be a liability at this point. But I think he's a lot better than D'Lo if you're trying to win a title, and I think that would be a really cool, fun fit. They would make the Lakers absolutely title contenders, which they probably will be no matter what if they're able to retieve, uh, retain Austin Reeves and Rui Hachimura. When it comes to the Suns' construction, I think... The interesting thing to look at is, do they value saving just that bit of cap more than CP? I wouldn't, because I think they are so starved for good basketball players that overpaying a good basketball player might still be worth it. But you could look at this as a real rehaul moment for them and maybe open the door for them to also move on from DeAndre Ayton, the sign and trade potential with him to go get a like sub all-star level kind of guy. I was thinking about Fred Van Vliet in Toronto, going to be a free agent, a guy who is better than Chris Paul at this point, more capable of playing off ball too, because I still think they're going to want somebody in that guard role better than campaign. Even if book is more of a primary ball handler, Fred Van Vliet is accustomed to sharing ball handling duties, better, more willing catch and shooter than CP3. All of these things would make him, I think, a better fit, more productive player. You could look maybe to another wing or a big Washington, Kuzma, Christoph Porzingis. Those guys are going to be free agent. So the eight and sign and trade dynamic would be intriguing. But I still think they should retain CP3, the asset, however they can and whatever they think to be most effective and the trickeration here could be cool because yeah it would be great if they weren't paying him 30 million and they could open up that uh MLE as you were discussing 
but they're just not going to have a bunch of options to add like multiple quality players this year. They're not going to be digging into that free agency class. Aiton is kind of the only piece that they can really move with some intrigue. They have no draft capital. So it's going to be fascinating to see the direction they take it, but they are not shying away from big moves. Shout out Matt Ishbia, dude. Monty Williams gone. Who knows what will happen with CP3 and 8. And the Suns are a very interesting team to watch with, obviously, an incredible, incredible duo. So there you have it, folks. Our thoughts on the news of the day. But much more importantly and very excitingly, another awesome game of these NBA Finals, which have just been a joy to watch so far and will continue to be. So we will be back after Game 4. Fear not breaking down all the action. If you enjoyed this one, then check us out on YouTube. You may already be on the volume page please subscribe if you are and if you've enjoyed you can also listen to the podcast across audio platforms and you can find us on social media twitter at nerd underscore sesh tiktok and instagram at nerd sesh tiktok is where we're most consistent with the content particularly our trivia stuff and you can join our discord at the link tree that is across our social media bios so with that as always appreciate you guys hope you've enjoyed the basketball i've been carson brabber i've been logan camden and this was Nerd Sash. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.